All right, sweet. Hey, we're in the book of Titus, chapter 2. We're going to read a big portion of scripture out of Titus, but before I do that, let me kind of explain what we're doing. Uh, we only have a couple weeks left in basically the series we've been doing called God Made Known. We've been tra- trying to do our best to answer the question of who is God? What is God like? How does God reveal himself to us? Um, why is it that so often when God reveals himself to us, he reveals his personality, his characteristics, his attributes? So every week we've been looking at different attributes of God. And we've talked about this in a lot of different ways, but as Tozer talks about in his classic book on the attributes of God, he says what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You could say that all of our issues in life probably stem from this idea that maybe we have a misunderstanding of God, maybe a misapplication of that truth of God. And so we want to kind of just bring our hearts, our perspectives, our mind back into just God, who are you? What are you like? When we pray to God, what do you envision? Is there a God in heaven who who is eager to meet with you, who loves you, who is holy, who is just, who is good, who is gracious? Or what kind of perspective do you have of God? So we want to kind of bring our our focus, our attention back to this. Um, I'm going to make sure we say this every week to some extent, but we don't want to just know about God in the process. We want to know him. The concern from, from this to me is that maybe this is like a great little series on the doctrine of God but we're missing out on truly knowing him. My hope is that you know him. The Bible uses actually two Greek words for the word to know. There's this word like iaido and gnosko. Gnosko, this means to know by experience. The other one is just means to know perceptually. Like I know two plus two is four. I know that. I don't gnosko that. I know it's four, but the Greek has this idea of you can know God, you can gnosko God, you can know him by experience. And my hope is that we would just know God by experience. We truly know him, not just in a perception kind of a way, but that we would know him. So let me just kind of review a little bit with you guys, just in case you've missed it. Here's what we've done. Uh, Our first week was God is. We did the first week on just the classic arguments for God's existence. Um, I would say, please check that out if you missed that. Then we walked through this. God is holy, joy, just, love, transcendent, faithful, wise, good. Last week, we talked about how God is sovereign, and today... We just want to look at how God is grace. Not just he is gracious, but God himself is grace. An attribute is basically an identity statement saying this is who God is. God is grace. Peter said in 1 Peter 5.10, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Listen to that. The God of all grace grace. The God of all grace. God is grace. And we want to just slow down and just kind of go, do we understand this God who is the God of grace? I think for many years I really misunderstood grace. I think there are many maybe who still we can misunderstand grace. And my hope and my prayer is that God would just redeem our perspective of grace. That we serve a God who is grace, a God who is gracious. That maybe again you don't view God in that way. Maybe you have just this angry, old, like vindictive kind of God up in heaven who's just waiting for us to sin. But we see this beautiful just illustration of God being a gracious God throughout Scripture. Not just that he is grace, not just that he, he is it, but he also, in his, him being grace, he gives us the power to change. I think there are many people who wonder, does this Christian thing really work? Like, does it work? Does Christianity really work for you? And I think grace answers that question saying, yes. It doesn't just say, hey, change. It gives us the power to change. And that's grace. And we want to like dissect this and look at this. I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones famously said, there's no more glorious word than the word grace. This is just the best word you can use. It's kind of a cheesy statement, but I love it. It's been said that grace is spelled (laughs) J-E-S-U-S. That's how you spell grace. It's just Jesus. It goes back to the person of Jesus. I mean, we see this theme and this characteristic throughout the Psalms, throughout the Old and New Testament, This is not just a New Testament thing. We see this God, the God of the Old Testament, same God. God is grace. We see in Psalm 103, verse 8, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. One of my favorite thoughts on this is when they first recognized and saw Jesus for who he is, they saw him and it says he was full of grace. Listen to this, John chapter 1, verse 16. It says, For from Jesus, fullness, For from his fullness, 
we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Uh, John, the author says, upon Jesus, in his fullness, there's just grace upon grace, just grace after grace. That Moses, through Moses came the law, but through Jesus came grace and truth. This is a wonderful blend of what we need today, I think, in our world more than anything. We maybe at times have a church that wants to talk about grace and not truth, or truth and not grace. And that is kind of why we've been doing this series. We've looked at how God is holy, God is just. We looked at some of those characteristics or attributes. We go, oh, this might be a hard one. And then we also see that he's full of grace and truth. He's full of grace. And I don't know if you know Jesus in this way, but he is full of grace. There is grace upon grace. And again, we don't want you just to know this in an intellectual way, but do you know the grace of Jesus? Have you experienced the grace of Jesus? Jesus is full of grace. Can you imagine? Full of grace and truth. That's how they saw him. They go, this man is gracious. And so I want to read of just a very uh, famous and well-known passage in the book of Titus. Uh, we're going to start in chapter 2, verse 11, and then jump into chapter 3, because it's just one complete thought. So Titus chapter 2, verse 11 is where we will pick up. Titus 2, verse 11. Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our, our great, the, the appearing, sorry, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So we say amen. Chapter 3, verse 3, he says, We, for we ourselves, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. He says, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. You can still say amen there. Uh, but, but... This is the good news. This is the gospel. This is grace. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So powerful, so rich, so much there. We just want to walk through this passage. We want to walk through this attribute that when the God of grace appeared, he saved us. So why don't we just pray? Let me just invite the Lord to speak. Father, we just want to thank you. We want to thank you that you are grace. That God, you gave your son who is full of grace and truth. That there's grace upon grace. God, I know that for myself, for maybe many in this room, maybe that's been a very difficult thing to accept, just to welcome, to embrace. God, we, we just pray and ask that this would not just be, again, something that you convince our minds, but God, that you just transform our hearts in this truth, that you are a God of grace. Lord, Lord, we thank you that this is just who you are. God, we thank you that you can't help but be gracious. And so we, we need you. We ask that you'd speak would transform, that God, this grace would train, that this grace would teach, that this grace, God, would lead to a completely different life, that your love, Jesus, your grace would just compel us. So we look to you, we need you, we thank you in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. I have a question, just a simple question. How do we stop sinning? How do we stop sinning? You're probably thinking, uh, we don't. Or maybe it's like, uh, you die, that's how you stop. Probably true. But really, how do we stop sinning? And what I, what I mean by that is, how do we stop giving ourselves over to the lifestyle of sin? Of course we're going to sin, but how does it not be uh, something I practice, I give myself over to? Uh, John said it in 1 John chapter 3, verse 6. John writes, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Now, this is interesting, right? This is kind of the theme of 1 John. He's basically saying the love of God it will do something to you where that cannot be your, your primary identity or lifestyle that you keep on sinning. Are we going to sin? Of course. 
1 John 1 talks about that's why we confess our sin, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. But he's saying at the same time, this will not be your primary lifestyle. They will no longer offer yourselves as slaves to sin. They are not offering your body as slaves to Jesus, Romans 6. You're saying, at one point in time I offered my body to sin, but now I'm offering my body to Jesus. So he says, he who abides in him no longer He's using this in the present ongoing tense. Like, he doesn't keep on sinning. But you're going, okay, but how? Like, how do you stop sinning? You know, when I was uh, in high school, my like, freshman, sophomore year, there was, like, my freshman, sophomore crush. Lasted kind of two years. Uh, this was a girl who I, like, you know, you know, I'm 14, 15, like, oh, my gosh, I love her. Like, right? You think that. And, like, you blow it up in your mind. And here was the problem. Uh, I had a very strong feelings for this girl, and she happened to like my arch enemy in high school. You know, you have one of those people. He was basically, and it's true, he was the 2.0 version of me, and I hate to admit that. Oh, it hurts. But in so many ways, right? So for me, you know, I maybe mentioned this, but basketball was my life, and in my mind, like, this is my thing. Like, I'm going to be known for this. So freshman year, I'm on JV, which I thought was impressive because we had a freshman team, a sophomore team, a JV team of ours, and there's four teams. And so I was a freshman on JV. He was the only freshman on varsity, and that killed me. Um, I won MVP of JV by freshman year, but it didn't even matter because he was, he was on varsity. And there was just this guy, he just was, he kind of like had that, that big shadow. He was very tan, very fit. I was very pale, not fit, not like I was just thin, very thin. Uh, you know, I was funny, but he was like funnier, right? It's just like, there's always a little bit more. And I just, oh, I just, he just it killed me. And then, so sophomore year, it was just that rivalry internally. Like, we, you know, we're both sophomores now on varsity, and there's that rivalry going. Like, who gets to take the last shot? All of that. But the girl I liked uh, happened to like him. And it just made it ten times harder. It was just so painful. Uh, sophomore year, actually, in my mind, was a big deal because my, my, my brother's sophomore year and my sister's sophomore year, they were the homecoming prince and princess. So sophomore year, I'm like, okay, it's my year. He became sophomore prince. He was the sophomore prince. Like, everything that could go wrong was going wrong. I actually remember, and she, the girl I liked, was the sophomore princess, and I'm not making this up. She was the sophomore princess. So they're going together. And that's when, like, their love started being kindled, and I'm like, this can't happen. It was, like, awful to watch this. I remember actually at, like, our homecoming dance, and my wife can attest this, but I remember, like, she, this girl was there, and I remember, like, I, oh, gosh, it's so timid, it's so foolish. I just wanted to tell her, hey, you look really pretty tonight. That's all I wanted to say. I, I just, I wanted to just go, hey, you look so pretty. That's all I wanted to say. I couldn't do it. I walk up to her, and I said her name, which is called Girl X. I'm like, hey, <laughs> like nothing. she's like what the music I can't hear you and I tried to say it again and then nothing like mumble came out I just said nothing I gotta go and I ran outside I'm like what do I do it was the worst like panic moment ever and then from that point on they started dating like the week after and it was just oh it was soul crushing right it's awful now if someone just said to me Josiah just get over her just stop liking her I'd be like you're crazy if you told me to stop I can't stop how do you stop well here's how I eventually stopped a greater love came along. Yes. You know how it goes. No, stop, stop, stop this. You don't even know the story yet. But it was that sophomore year that I actually met my now wife, now the mother of my third child. But it's crazy because you think about looking back, sophomore year, I actually, there wasn't interest right away. I was like, ah, oh, she's cool, whatever. But it's like for the friendship, <laughs> the friendship began to grow so much. I'm like, I can't imagine her not being like in my life, right? And that was sophomore year of my junior year. We started dating. Now she's about to have my third baby. It's crazy. Um, <laughs> But I, I'm bringing all this up because if someone just say, hey, just get over it, stop, just stop liking her, like, that's impossible, right? I just can't stop. You see, a weaker love had to be replaced with a greater love. And, and here is the point. If someone just says, stop sinning, like someone say, I do this as a parent, it's terrible, like stop it. Like, how, like we can't just stop sinning because let's be honest, like sin is enticing. Sin is fun. Sin is thrilling. Sin is exciting. There's a love there, but there must be a greater love that comes on the scene. And the greater love is our love for Jesus. It's saying, yes, I love sin. Everyone, you, whether or not you maybe admit it, you know, I, don't, I hate sin, maybe, good, hopefully. But there's like this thing in us in our flesh, we go, I love this, I love this. But then Jesus comes along and you say, no, a greater comes along. I love him so much, I, I, I hate sinning. This it needs to be replaced with a greater love. The only way to conquer a love is with a greater love. And so this idea of how do we stop sinning, I believe we must replace it with a greater love, and that is in Jesus. And you see, and that is really knowing the goodness and the grace of God. If someone just said, Josiah, stop sinning, I go, I, that's impossible. I remember being like a sophomore, junior, and I really started taking my faith serious in high school towards the end of it. And it's like, okay, how do I break certain strongholds? How do I break certain patterns, certain habits? And really what ultimately happened was a greater love came in my life, and that was Jesus. 
The gospel of grace was the most powerful thing I've ever heard. I grew up in the church my whole life, but when I really began to contemplate, hear the gospel, be amazed by the gospel, because be amazed by my brokenness and sinfulness and disgustingness and seeing the goodness and grace of Jesus, it was a greater love came in and replaced all of those desires for those other things. A greater love came in and new desires came in. A new heart came in. And so here's why I'm bringing this up, because we need to see that this grace has this power to truly change, that we can't stay the same. It's impossible to stay the same if you experience the grace of God in your life and in my life. And so when we walk through this today, here's what I want to do, because maybe we could try to make sure we define, when we claim an attribute of God, we want to define it and talk through it. So here's the four points, and we're going to pull away from the text today. We're going to see the grace of God. We're going to see how grace redeems your past, grace transforms your present, and grace secures your future. The Bible has this kind of approach to grace as its past, present, and future work. Grace didn't just work one time, it's still working. Grace is still at work in my life and in your life. We never graduate from grace. So let's look at the first point. Uh, The grace of God. Grace of God. Let's read Titus chapter 2 verse 11 again. It says, we'll just read the first part. For the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. It's a powerful statement. God's grace has appeared. It's come down. The idea is, again, have you experienced this grace? We might know this, but do you know that his grace has appeared? You know, we know that his grace is amazing. We sing it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I know you, many of you know the story of the author who wrote that, John Newton, who in the 18th century was a slave trader, who grew up partially in the church, not really. His father was a sailor. He joined his father at a very young age. His mom died when he was very young. He becomes a sailor. He becomes a part of the, uh, just the slave trade. And you see that one day there's a, a storm that basically almost cost him and everyone on the boat their life. He cried out, Lord, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. You see that he was radically changed at that point. He believes he's radically changed by the gospel. He's now, years later, he's working with William Wilberforce to really help abolish slavery in the UK and really throughout the world. Like They're working on that. He gives money and life to that. But he's looking at his life and he goes, what? Amazing grace that would save someone like me? Like me? Like I was once a slave, I was once in the most disgusting field and that grace saved me? And here's the idea. Sometimes you go, wow, like, I almost can't fathom that grace. Or sometimes we see, obviously, in our moment, in our culture, in our world, that we live in this, this, an extreme lack of grace. Where we go, I can't believe that was your profession. I don't even want to look at you, talk to you, be with you. You're not welcome here. You're not welcome to my home. You're not welcome to this church. But John Newton goes, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved someone like me. It's in a very important and big day when you realize there's not really a big difference between John Newton and me or John Newton and you because the same grace that saved him is the same grace that saves me. You might think my sin is not as disgusting. I'm sorry to admit, but it is. Your sin and my sin is just as wicked. We've all fallen short of the glory and the goodness of God. We've all broken the law and the command in the heart of God. You see, it is amazing grace, not just for John Newton, but for me, for you. This is truly amazing grace. There's something when you go, gosh, I I was that wretched person. I was the blind person. Like, that was me. Sometimes we look at grace in other people's stories. I'm like, wow, God, look what you brought them out of. But do we ever take time to go, God, look what you brought me out of? Even if it's just self-righteousness. Even if it's just boasting and foolish things. Thinking your goodness of God, which is somehow going to make God more pleased with you. And God goes, your righteousness is filthy rags to me. Like, I have to not, not just confess my sin, but confess my righteousness that I boast in. And this idea of amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saves someone like me. You know, Peter, the very last words that he wrote was in 2 Peter. And the very last verse was in 2 Peter 3. Peter has this call and he says, grow. And here's what he says. He says, grow. Not grow in holiness or grow in maturity. Grow in love, which would all be really good and important things. But you know how he ends his last words he wrote to the church? Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He, ha- he ends with grow in grace. My, my question is like, how? How do we grow in grace? I mean, this is just, this is everyone's call, by the way. Paul's very last words in 2 Timothy 4, right before Paul's about to be headed, his last words, very similar, similar, Paul just says, grace be with you, amen. Last words, grace be with you. John, who saw Jesus on the island of Patmos, receives this book of Revelation, receives the apocalypse, receives like the end times, kind of, here's what's going to go on, here's what's going to happen. John ends the whole book by saying, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. The last words in the Bible are grace. Grace be with you all. Amen. Peter's last words, Paul's last words, John's last words, everyone's final word was grace. Isn't that unbelievable? Grace be with you. 
grow in grace. I mean, think, like, why is there such this emphasis on grace? I think Peter probably got it, like, looking back at his life. Think about Peter. Peter was so interesting. Peter was the guy that was just so, he was, like, bold as a lion, but, like, just so incredibly foolish at the same time. But Peter's the guy that's like, I'm going to walk on water. He walked on water. How amazing. But then he begins to sink, right? Peter's the guy that is when Jesus is praying in the garden of Gethsemane, he takes a sword, cuts off the high servant's ear, Malchus's ear. He cut, cuts off his, his ear. Jesus takes the ear, puts it back on him. And I love that because that story is so bizarre and so weird to me. But you think, like, what a grace to Malchus. It was actually grace to Peter because think about this. The guy could go, hey, this guy cut off my ear. And the guy's like, you have two ears. What are you talking about? Yeah, but Jesus put it back on. Like, okay. He, like, Jesus got rid of the incriminating evidence against Peter. Just such a grace. Peter's the guy that's like, Jesus, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He goes, rightly so, Peter. Heaven, reveal this to you. And then Jesus is like, I'm going to die and go to the cross. He's like, and Peter goes, far beat from you. And he goes, get behind me, Satan. Like, Peter had these constant highs and lows. Just so, so interesting. Peter's fishing one day after Jesus died and rose again, and he sees Jesus on the shore, and he goes swimming over to Jesus. And if you remember the story, Jesus is making, cooking breakfast for them, which is so cool, by the sea. And then P- Jesus goes, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep, tend my sheep. And what I love is Peter obviously denied Jesus three times, and Jesus is restoring him three times. And here's what I'm getting at. Peter fell over and over again. He had great highs and great lows. And I'm sure at different points in life, he wanted to boast, like, I'm, I'm, I'm the rock. Jesus called me the rock. I'm the one who walked on water, right? I'm, I'm the one who did all these amazing things. And here's what we see. We just see grace. We see Peter go, oh, looking back now, grow in grace. Like, after all of these things, I could maybe try to boast in me or what I've done. or I, Jesus, if they all deny you, I'm not going to deny you. He's constantly b- boasting in his works, constantly boasting in himself. And Jesus is like, you're going to deny me thrice before the rooster crows twice. Okay, do you get it? Like, and I think Peter's looking back and going, oh, grace. Like, I get it. Looking back, it wasn't me. It was, it was grace. Grow in grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Grace. Paul, grace. There is this constant thread and theme of grace. So obviously, like, what is grace? Like, what is this? You know, there's so many ways maybe it can be defined, but grace is just also synonymous with favor. Whenever you see the word grace or favor, it's just con- it used kind of synonymously in the Bible where God just wants to pour out his favor. It's, and it's this idea of he uses it to undeserving people. Grace is that undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor of God just upon you. The idea is that you and I do merit some things. We do merit, like we work for some things. You and I deserve what we deserve. What we merit is hell, and God gives us grace. There's things we do deserve. We do not deserve grace. Grace is just freely given. And grace is just so beyond me. I don't get, I really don't. I, I so still misunderstand this idea of grace. I really struggle with I, this idea of grace. Even as I'm trying to raise kids, I'm trying to teach them, you know, there's consequences for things you do. Like if you do this, there's going to be a consequence. And then I'm like, but there's also grace. And I'm like, I'm so confused. I'm like, me too. Grace is just so, it's so bizarre. It's so difficult. It's one of those things where I'm not sure how do we, how do we go to this? How do we live this out? How do we express this? You know, we think about the difference between grace and mercy, right? Mercy has been just in a simple definition is not getting what you deserve. You, you commit something, you do something wrong. I, I deserve punishment. I deserve jail time. I deserve whatever. Mercy is I did not get that. Like, wow, I love mercy. But grace is getting something you don't even deserve at all. It's not because of that. It's like in spite of that. So the idea is like, I merited hell. Mercy, the mercy of God would be saying, you know what? I'm going to spare you from hell. That's mercy. And he's done that. That's amazing. But God doesn't just go, not only are you not getting hell, I'm going to give you heaven. That's grace. I'm not back to this neutral place. I'm back to this like, infinitely rich, heirs according to his promise, as he would say here. It is crazy. It, doesn't make, it does not make sense to me. It's just one of those things God's like, I'm going to show you this grace. For the grace of God has appeared to all. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared for all men. The grace of God has appeared. Have you experienced and received this grace? This grace. I, I know it's a silly acronym, but I have to mention it because we're talking about grace. Grace, maybe you know this. You grew up in the church like me. G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. But that's like the, the idea. Like, why do I get this? I don't know. Just you get God's riches, God's blessing at Christ's expense. Because of him, he gives you this grace. Just, it doesn't make sense. It's so, it's so, again, beyond me. But Paul is showing us what grace does and how grace works. How this God of grace works. He's saying, I'm going to redeem your past. I'm going to transform your present. I'm going to secure your future. Grace is threefold. Grace, again, is not just that one point in time I needed grace then. I need grace today. I need grace tomorrow. I I need it always. Amen? So here's the first point. We talked about the grace of God. Let me just make sure I answer this question. How do we get grace? Um, I don't know. I don't. Very, like, it's one of those things like God just gives it freely. 
But the only thing I think that can make, some more sen- make sense to me a little bit is James chapter 4, verse 6. Listen to these two parts, these phrases. In James 4, verse 6, it says, but he, God, gives more grace. Unbelievable. Okay, read the, go ahead and read the context. And, uh, yes, please. But he says, therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Very interesting. Who does God not give grace to? The proud. God resists the proud. That's strong language. He's like, there's pride. I'm resisting the proud, but I give grace to the humble. I, I don't know. How do you get grace? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. James would go on to say, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, he will lift you up. God resists the proud. The person thinks, I don't need this. Okay, well, you're not going to get it. The person who thinks this isn't for me, well, it's not for you then. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. But even that phrase, he goes, he gives more grace. Do you view God this way? I've really struggled with that first phrase for such a long time. He gives more grace. He just does. And he resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Grow in the grace. All I can say is how. Approach God in this humble sort of manner and state. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. He will lift you up. He gives more grace. He wants to give grace. He is a God of grace. He is looking to give grace. It's freely given. Freely receive it. So we see this God of grace. Now we're going to see, number two, this grace that redeems your past. Grace that redeems your past. Here's how Paul puts it. He actually does it brilliantly, as you know. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. Read again with me. Titus 3, verse 3. Grace redeems your past. Paul is making a very strong case for this. Titus 3, 3. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But... When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now, what he does in verse 3 is brilliant to me. He's like, don't forget who you were. Like, don't forget who you were before the kindness and goodness of God appeared. Like in verse 3, let's read this verse 3. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Everyone say amen. That's, yes, he goes, that's you. Like, that's you, you and me. Think about this description of us. He's like, don't forget how wicked your heart was. Don't forget how led astray you were. Don't forget how there's this inward bent constantly. You serve the God of you. Like, you lived for you. You were once foolish. This is who you were. And before we even get to the word but, I mean, do the Bible's constantly trying to portray us in this way? Like, I really want to move on from this, like, foolish. I want to move on from verse 3. Like, I don't like verse 3. Like, you hated one another and you were hated. Is this not our world? He goes, this is, this is what's going on. And before we get to the but, I think we have to sit in this for a little bit. I think the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is really good news because the bad news is really bad. Like, look how bad we were. And not just how bad we were. Like, look at where our end point would be. Heaven is so much sweeter because hell is real. And you go, wow, look what he saved me from. I was just foolish, disobedient, led astray, just perverted inwardly, focused on myself inwardly, my desires, my passions. I was constantly giving myself over to slaves of various things. I want to get to the butt so bad. Because that's, like, that's what the Bible does. I love this. It paints a terrible picture. It's like, but God. And you're like, oh, thank you. If we just ended there, like, good night. Bye, guys. Like, if we just ended there, it'd be so terrifying. But it doesn't end there, obviously. But at the same time, here's, I think the problem with most of us in this world is I don't know if we realize how bad or how far off we are without God. Like, I don't know if sometimes, even as you get saved and walk with the Lord for years and years, sometimes you forget, like, what did Jesus save me from? What did Jesus save me to? Even today, there's still, my heart is still wicked, and grace is still at work. And it's not just, this was me a long time ago. This is still in me, and there's this battle of the flesh and the spirit, and God's, I still need grace today in this moment. And Paul's painting such a serious picture. I love what Charles Spurgeon says about this idea. He says, listen to this, too many think lightly of sin. Yes. And therefore, think lightly of the Savior. He who has stood before his God, convicted and condemned, with a rope about his neck, is the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil which has been forgiven him, and to live to the honor of the Redeemer by whose blood he has been cleansed. I don't know if we can appreciate Jesus until we appreciate sin in some ways, which is so weird to say appreciate sin. I don't know if you'll appreciate your Savior until you realize, oh my gosh, my sin had me so far from God. It's, Jesus would put it this way in Luke 7, right? He goes, if you're forgiven of much, you love much. If you're forgiven of little, you love little. This idea of, I don't, I don't think, I, sometimes we might think, I'm forgiven of little. Like, we cannot fall in that spectrum. I am forgiven of much. 
realize how much you've been forgiven of. It's really weird how hard it is sometimes to convince people, like, you're not as great as you think you are. <laughs> like, right? If you talk to people who are like, oh, man, they definitely don't know what everyone else knows about them, right? It's really hard to be like, oh, uh, yeah, like, Jesus loves you, but you're not as great as you think you are. Like, it's really hard to, like, do that, right? It's hard to get someone to that point, but it, it's so necessary when preaching the gospel. There's a guy named Francis Schaeffer who is a really great thinker in our, kind of like in our, you know, 20th century. Here's what he said about this idea. I thought it was so good. If someone asked him one time, like, how would you share the gospel if you had an hour with someone? How would you share the gospel? Here's what he said. I would spend 45 to 50 minutes on the negative <laughs> to really show him his dilemma, that he is morally dead. Then I'll take the last 10 to 15 minutes to preach the good news uh, or to preach the gospel of Jesus, right? Like, what would you do? I would spend 45 minutes telling them how much like, of a bum they are. Like, there's, a, there's something so good. Like, we are so dead in our sins. We got to realize our heart is so far from God, but God. And it's hard because I want to get to that, but it's like, we got to sit in this. If you haven't had time yet where you just kind of, maybe you're alone in your room and you're reflecting and going, wow, my heart is so self-absorbed. My heart is so prone to me, my needs. We hear the issues in the world and we're going, oh, how is that going to affect me? And like, my heart is just so constantly, my, this is me, true, me. And like, when I realize, oh my gosh, I still, I still have so much more to go and I still need the grace of God. I don't graduate from the grace of God. And he said, we need to spend some more time on this. So he says what? You were once foolish, disobedient, just slaves to your passions. And then he says, Titus chapter 3, verse 5, listen to this. He goes, hated by others, hating one another, verse 5, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. How good is that? But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. I offer sinning. He offers saving <laughs> I'm like, here you go. What do I have to offer God? A lot of sin. And he offers me saving. But when the goodness and the kindness, just the loving kindness of God appeared, he saved us. He would go on to say in verse 5, uh, not by works of righteousness, not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, he saved us. There's something really important we see throughout the Bible kind of like this language being used that we would call indicatives and imperatives. And maybe you remember like old English class, like here's the idea, indicatives and imperatives. They're, an indicative is basically a statement or something declared about you, right? So if I am sitting, it's like that's a statement, I am sitting. It's not something I'm doing, it's not a command, it's not an imperative, it's not go do this, it's I'm sitting. Here's what the Bible says, he saved us. I love this idea that every imperative flows out of indicatives, meaning sometimes in the church we can focus too much on go do this, like an imperative, do this which is very important. He talks about that later, that we do good works. But we forget that that comes after the indicative. He saved us. Meaning, it's again, like the idea if I'm playing baseball, like I was hit by the ball, that's like an indicative. I hit the ball, right? That's different. Like I did it. There's something I did. It's actually used in this way saying, it hit you. He saved you. You didn't do anything. Not by works of righteousness. Like he saved us. And then out of that, and out of that light, and out of that truth, now we do good works. What, to get his saving? No, he already saved us. Like, I love the, the beauty of the gospel. It's obviously Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of works. Not of works. It's the gift of God. By grace you've been saved. It's used in this past, passive, participle kind of language, which I love it. He has saved you. It's in the past. He saved you. And it's passive. You didn't do anything. But it's this ongoing tense as well. It's in the sense that he saved you and he's saving you. It is so beautiful to think, wow, like he has saved me. He's, I just, I received that. Not by works of righteousness, but he did it. See, grace redeems your past. I don't know if we realize all the, just looking back, oh, wow, God, look what you have saved me from. So I want to read again Titus 2, verse 11. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. He saved us. Do you remember the story of, of Naaman in the Bible? Such a unique story. In 2 Kings 5, Naaman was a general in the Syrian army. He gets wind that there's this prophet named Elisha who has the power to heal. Well, Naaman, even though he's a great general, very strategic, very smart, he has leprosy. His time is short. Back then, it was basically incurable. Like, there's nothing you could do. He goes, I have leprosy. What can I do? He gets wind that there's this guy, this prophet of God, who can help restore or help heal. And so they go, go to him. Just talk to him. See what he can do. So Naaman goes to him. Elisha, the prophet, doesn't even meet with him. His servant meets with him. And he goes, you know what? Uh, Elisha says, just go dip into the Jordan seven times, and you'll be better. And he, he's furious. Naaman's like, I'm a general. Like, I came all this way to meet you. I don't even get to meet with Elisha. Your servant's telling me to dip in the river, and he just leaves in an angry like, state. He's mad. He walks away. Then his servant says to him, he goes, hey, if he were to ask you to do something like noble, wouldn't you not have done it? 
If he were to ask you to go do it, you know, if he said, hey, go climb the mountain where the dragon is and slay the ten-headed dragon and steal the golden apples and bring it to me, then you'll be healed, you would have done that. He was yeah. Like, that, he doesn't really say that. But that's the idea. Like, he would have done anything. Like, he would have done anything. But he's like, he just said go dip in the Jordan. It's humiliating. Seven times. In this dirty river. It's not like known for, like, it's cleansed. It's, really? This is what I do? Just dip in it? You'll come out cleansed? And he does that. And he comes out cleansed. He, and I think here is the idea so often. We hear the good news of the gospel, and we go, no, it's too simple. It's too simple. No way. Just dip in it sometime. It's too simple for me to be healed. Wait, believe on Jesus to be saved? It's too simple. Yeah, yeah, I know. Your pride, your ego, you kind of got to let go. It is. It's very simple. Do not be deceived by the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus as Eve was deceived in the garden. 2 Corinthians 11.3. Don't be deceived by the simplicity. It's so simple. It's so beautiful. Why do we want to feel like, look what I did. I climbed the mountain and killed the dragon. Like, that is, no. But that gives you nothing to boast in. It's basically saying just the humble are in, the proud are out. The humble are in. Humble yourself and he'll lift you up. Not by your works of righteousness. He saved us. Okay? It's so interesting. The Bible is just like, do you get it? It's passive. Receive it. Receive that. I love when the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, Jesus, what are the works we must do to inherit eternal life? Jesus goes, this is the work, singular, you must do. They say, what are the works? He goes, here's the work. Believe on me whom the Father has said. Like, what? I want to know the works. Believe. Is that a work? Belief. I think it's so beautiful. Like, we thought there's something we must do, and he goes, no, no, believe. Again, for, for many years, I feel like the gospel to me was, I have to do these things in order to get God's favor. If I read, if I pray, if I go to church, if I do these things, then I have God's favor. I didn't realize I have God's favor, therefore I do these things. And it's so free. You go, wow, I have God's favor. He has saved me. He has redeemed me. I don't have to do these things. I get to do these things. I don't have to read my Bible. I get to. I love to because I'm, I'm, I'm just really taking in all that God has done for me, all these indicative, all these statements that are declared about me that I am free. I am forgiven. I am saved. I am washed by the Holy Spirit. I'm all these things. As David was washed, I am just, I, I receive that, and therefore I go do. That imperatives and flow out of indicatives. That these commands to go do come after what God has done. I love that it's, it's done, now do. <laughs> it's done. Now go live it out. Receive it. Take it in. Like it hit you. Now out of light, we just, we go live it out. And so he's saying, grace, it redeems your past. I love how the New King James puts it. I can't move on. But he says, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Can we just focus on that phrase? The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. I don't get this. I don't, I'm not trying to say this summarizes the, the age-old difficult question of what about that person in you know, some tribe in the far-off distance and what, if they never heard the gospel. I don't know how to answer that question, but here's what I do know. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. I don't get it. I'm not here trying to say, like, I can't really answer that question fully, but I can say, isn't this a beautiful statement? That the, that the grace of God, that brings salvation, not just the grace of God, the, the grace of God in such a way that can actually bring salvation has appeared to all men. I, I don't get it, but I just go, wow, thank you, God, for this grace. Wait, it's available to all? Yeah, it's available to all. Not some, mm-mm, all. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, for all men, that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I'd say, man, thank you, Jesus. This grace redeems my past. Again, I don't know if it's just things that you think about you've done, but it's also the things that have been done to you. Grace redeems that. The things others have done to you, grace redeems. It's not just your sin. It's a sin done to you. It's sin in general. That grace can restore and redeem that. And one of those things, you go, I don't get it. I don't know. I just receive it. I don't, it is an indicative statement. Again, I don't get it. I just receive that. That it's not just a sin I've committed, but sin committed against me, as heinous or as painful as it might be for you or for myself, you go, wow, but the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to me in that way. Yeah, it redeems your past completely. You were once this. You were once identified in this way. I'm the person who this person did something to. You were once this, but now I say to you, you are washed. You are cleansed. You're redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. That's the statement about you. That's what God declares over you. That's the indicative over your life. Okay, thank you, Lord. See, grace redeems your past. But not only that, grace transforms your present. Grace can't just stay in the past. Grace must transform your present. Titus 2.11 again. What does he say after this? The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Verse 12, what? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. 
Again, I know this so much better. I'm going to say it, and I love it in the New King James as well, but I'm just going to read it. He says, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. I want to just focus on this. Grace transforms your present. Here's the point. Paul says, this grace that has appeared, it trains and teaches. Did you know that grace trains and teaches? Grace doesn't just save. We get that? He says, grace, this grace that has appeared to all men, teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, and to live righteously, godly, and soberly in the present age. Isn't it? He said, grace doesn't just save you, it trains you. This is so important. Because someone who goes, I believe in Jesus, right? I believe in Jesus, I've been a Christian for 15 years. And you go, but there's been no change in your life. Have you truly experienced the grace of God? This is what Paul is bringing up. Because grace should train and teach. Listen, I'm, I, I get this. I think all of us, to some extent, all of us want to be zapped by God. I get it. Me too. Like, I, Jesus, I believe in you. God's like, zap, all sin's gone. Like, it'd be amazing. It'd be absolutely amazing. Sometimes I think when you hear testimonies that are like this, it can almost do like, an injustice to us. We're like, yeah, for years I was living this kind of lifestyle. I was doing whatever I wanted. I partied. Uh, and you hear all this stuff, and it's like, and then one day it changed overnight. My life's holy and righteous. You're like, oh my gosh, how does that happen? Like, is that possible? Like, maybe. Yes, maybe it is. And it's beautiful. God can break addictions and all that thing in a night. Absolutely. I so believe that. Praise God. Amen. But we forget that also that salvation is a process, meaning I've been saved and I'm being saved and I will be saved. Grace is that. Grace is God has saved you, and grace is going to teach you and train you, and it's a process. You know, grace is a training camp. Like, grace trains you. It's crazy. When I think about training, because I, when I trained for basketball, I did the same thing over and over and over again until I got rid of the awkward movement, until I could actually do it well. My point being, when it comes to grace, you have to train in grace. You have to give yourself over to these daily spiritual disciplines and habits and offer yourself to the Lord. Say, hey, Lord, I'm not going to offer my body to sin anymore. I'm offering it to you. Will you train me in your grace? How do I grow in your grace? Every day, humbly, I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to give myself over to the same kind of spiritual training that, that I'm told to do. I'm going to pray without ceasing. I'm going to rejoice evermore and everything give thanks. I'm going to read and, and seek you. Like, I'm going to train myself in the graces of God. It's been called the habits of grace, these spiritual disciplines. My point of this is just saying, Grace does absolutely redeem and justify, and, and it can transform you in a moment, but it also takes a process and sometimes a lifetime. I think what I, what I mean by that, again, is this. We need to be patient with one another. That if I see something in your life and I go, well, why are they still doing that? I need to be, grace is still training, but is it training? There's like this side where I go, it should, like, we got to be patient. But we also say, I love you so much, you cannot keep giving yourself over to this. Like, I love you so much, you've been, a, you, you've been coming and walking and following the Lord, but you're still sleeping with your girlfriend. No, tra grace trains and teaches. That is unacceptable. We're not going to live this way. We're not going to give ourselves over to these things. I'm not saying you won't ever sin, but there's repentance of it. You're abiding in him. A greater love has come into your life, right? That is the idea. It's like, I, I want to train myself up in this. See, again, grace is not just uh, uh, able to pardon you. Grace is power for the moment. Or grace is power, not just pardon. Sometimes we think grace pardons us, as Spurgeon said. Grace pardons us. You're forgiven. You're free. Yes. But grace is also power to transform. It trains us in godliness. It teaches us to deny these things and to take on this other lifestyle, Titus 2, verse 12. Again, in the church, sometimes maybe there's confusion or maybe there's not clarity. I think we need to see that grace is, is so beautiful. It's so thorough. It's so complete. You can't be the same. Come to Jesus as you are. He accepts you. It's so beautiful, but watch the grace of God transform and change you. You will come as you are, but you cannot stay that way if you've encountered the grace of God. Do we need to be patient with one another in the process? Absolutely. We're not necessarily zapped by it. Now there's this battle in Romans 7 talks about between the flesh and the spirit. So feed the spirit. Train the spirit. Starve the flesh. Watch the flesh shrink. Watch the spirit grow. There's still going to be two natures in you, but starve your flesh and feed and train your spirit. And see, he says grace trains. Grace will transform you because it trains you. Here's the age-old the age issue kind of with grace. I think so often maybe the different denominations or even the Catholic Church really struggled with grace early on because they brought the question of like, but if we really boast and talk about grace, people are just going to continue to sin. And like, no, that is not going to happen. Paul even brings this up, right? It's Romans 6. We know this. Romans 6 verse 1, Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? God forbid. By no means. How can we who are dead to sin live any longer in it? We can't be afraid to preach grace because we think people will continue to sin. We can't be afraid to preach grace. 
Because if they truly hear grace, the goodness of grace of Jesus, it's going to transform them. It's gonna, we go and say, again, Romans 6 goes on to say, I'm no longer going to offer my, my body to sin, but to Jesus. So we can't be afraid to preach grace. We know that true grace will train. It will transform. Amen? It does that. That's just what it does. There's a couple responses to grace. Sometimes you can abuse grace, and that's what Paul's warning about. Don't abuse this grace. Romans 6, don't. How can we who are dead to it live any longer in it? But we can also set it aside. We can frustrate the grace of God. Galatians 2.21 says it this way. It's so profound to me. Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. He goes, I, I don't set aside the grace of God. I'm not going to try to make perfect in my flesh what God began in the spirit. I'm going to boast in the grace of God. I'm not going to boast in my spiritual disciplines. I'm going to boast in the grace of God. I'm going to boast in who Jesus is and what he's done. Doesn't mean I neglect those disciplines, but I'm going to boast in the grace. I'm not going to set aside the grace of God. I'm not going to go back to the law. If, then, if I go back to the law, then Christ died in vain. So I'm not going to go back to the law. I'm going to boast in the finished work and the finished move of Jesus, his grace, and what he has done. So we, we don't frustrate it. We don't set it aside. We don't abuse it. He says grace teaches and grace transforms. This is so important. As you guys, I, I want to say in your small groups this week, please talk through this a little bit. Grace has to change and transform you. You can't just stay at like sal salvation, like I've been saved. It's I'm also being saved. And how is it saving you right now today? How is it currently at work in your life right now? What is it delivering you from right now? What is it setting you free from right now? Well, it did something 30 years ago. I don't care. What is it doing right now? It, it's, it's at work then, but it's at work now. Now. And the same grace is at work in our future. So last point. So we saw this. Grace redeems your past. Grace transforms your present. Fourthly, grace secures your future. Here's what Paul says in Titus 2, verse 13, right? Titus 2, verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of God, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I'm going to read this other translation because I'm more familiar with it and I love it. We're looking, we're looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself, uh, his own special people, zealous for good works. Here's the idea. Grace secures your future. He says, here's what grace does. It saved you. It's training you, and it's also getting you ready for the day you see your blessed hope. This is what we talk about, the blessed hope, the blessed hope of seeing Jesus. He goes, we're looking, we're waiting for the blessed hope of the glorious appearing. Do you know what he says, our God and Savior, Jesus, Jesus God? He goes, we're waiting for Jesus as God, the Savior, his appearing. We are waiting for him. We are looking for him. This beautiful day, we see him face to face. Here's what's so fascinating to me. Paul talks about the first appearing of Jesus. Grace has appeared, and obviously he's talking about the second coming of Jesus. Grace is going to come. Grace has come, and it's going to come. Jesus. We're looking for this blessed hope. It's come in the past, but it's coming again. This grace will one day come. And he says we're looking for this blessed hope. We're waiting for this blessed hope. Again, the hope of Jesus' coming was never to terrify you. It was never to make you scared, like, oh my gosh, Jesus is coming. This is supposed to be like, oh my gosh, Jesus is coming. It's crazy like how just a different like, language. Like, we can always be so afraid of this day. It's supposed to be such a beautiful day our heart longs for. I know a couple of you are getting married soon. I'm doing your weddings this summer, right? And it's so exciting because here's what makes me laugh. If there was like the fiance, if the male's like, oh, no, I'm getting married in the summer. I'd be like, oh, we got to talk. That's why you sound scared. I was like, uh, like, no, you want to hear, I'm getting married this summer, right? You don't want to hear, I'm getting, getting married this summer. I'm like, why are you scared? Like, you maybe shouldn't get married. Um, the idea is for us, we're not afraid of this. We're looking for, we're waiting for. It's like, wow, our Savior is coming. How beautiful. There's an excitement for that day. You want your wedding day to come, that is beautiful and glorious. If you don't, that is terrifying and not good. Something's off, right? If you're a Christian going, I don't want Jesus to come, something's off. Something's off. No, we're looking and waiting for the blessed hope of our glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he's looking for his own peop special people zealous for good works. He's looking right now like, oh, are you zealous for good works? Because again, this grace must transform and must change you. We don't just go, wow, God saved me. Now let's just wait for that day. No, now we must be about our Father's work. Now we must be about our Father's business. He's now, we're looking for him. He's looking for us who are zealous for good works. We're looking for Jesus, and he uses this play on words, but he's also looking for you to make the most of this life. People who are zealous for good works. Yes, we're looking for him, but he's looking for those who are eager to do good works, eager to serve him, eager to live for him. See, grace secures our future. He goes, you know he's coming? Are you ready? Are you excited? The idea of salvation, again, simply is Jesus Christ has delivered me from the penalty of sin. Stay with me. The penalty of sin. Jesus has de delivered me from the power of sin. And one day Jesus will deliver us from the presence of sin. I've been saved, I'm being saved, I will be saved. 
the penalty, it's forgiven. I've been pardoned. The power of sin over my life, I'm once a slave to sin, I'm a slave to Jesus. My life is Jesus's. Romans 6. And one day from the presence of sin, because obviously I'm still in this body, I still, I still sin. But one day, 1 John 3, when we see him, we will be like him. And that presence of sin removed. No longer Josiah graves in the flesh, but in that redeemed, glorified, new heavenly body that's talked about in 2 Corinthians 5. That, that you put on the first Adam, but one day you'll put on the last Adam. One day you'll have that incorruptible, that incorruptible seed. The idea of just, wow, the power and the presence of sin is removed completely. Again, grace secures your future. What I love about this is when Jesus was uh, taking communion or Passover with the disciples, he basically says, I, I'm not going to eat of this and drink of the fruit of the vine until I do it with you one day in heaven. And there was this promise like, look ahead, look ahead. Hey, you're remembering my body, my suffering. You're remembering all, all that I'm going to go through for you. You're, you're remembering that right now, and you're going to continue to do that. I'm not going to take this until I'm with you in heaven. And there's such this focus of just the, the future, this focus of just having this with Jesus. Here's what we're going to do. We are going to take communion. You guys hopefully got communion when you got walked in here. If you don't, we'll make sure we'll have some leaders maybe pass some out quietly. But here's the thing. Uh, we we want to remember this grace. We want to remember how this grace is also in the future as well. It's my past, it's my present, it's my future. So here's the thing. Church, stay with me. Here's what I'd ask. I would ask as you kind of hold your communion, as you hold this little thing with the juice and the top or bottom, whatever half it is, has the little cracker in it, you go, this grace has come. This grace has saved me. This grace is still saving me, still at work in me. And one day I will take this meal, this bread and this wine, one day in heaven with Jesus. I'm looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus. There is a sense of like, wow, Lord, I get to take this now, but one day I'll take it in the, in the future with you. Here's my thing. If you've not experienced the grace of God, you can do so today. That whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That right now, if you just call upon Jesus, he hears you, he sees you. That this grace is freely given to all. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared for all and to all men. Here's the idea. It's available. Take it while it's available. Don't postpone it. Don't wait. This grace is absolutely available. If you've never believed on Jesus, right now you can call upon the Lord. You can believe on Jesus. You will be saved. It's your belief in who Jesus is, what he's done for you. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not my words. God's words. You will be saved. Take and eat. Take and remember the grace of God. Look at this little cup with this little cracker and this little juice that kind of tastes a little bit funny. But say, God, this is grace. This is grace. The grace that you've given yourself to me freely. The grace that you've saved me, you're saving me and you will save me. Thank you for this grace. We just want to praise our God. We want to thank him. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say, we're going to worship. Take and eat and drink when you're ready. I'm going to be up here. I'm going to be quiet. We're going to give you guys some space just to take communion, to worship the Lord, to pray over it, to thank him to give thanks, to remember how your salvation is secure. One day you will take this with Jesus in heaven if you believe and call upon him. This grace is freely given, so please freely receive it. Amen? Let me just pray for you guys, and then we're going to worship. During worship, take and eat and drink, and I'll come back up and close in prayer. Father, we just want to say thank you for your son, Jesus. We want to say thank you for grace. God, by no means did we ever deserve this or work for this. God, you are just grace. You are the God of all grace. Thank you, Lord, that you are merciful and gracious, slow to anger, that, Father, you are compassionate, that, God, you've given your son Jesus for us. So we right now reflect on the cross. We reflect on your blood that was shed, on your body that was broken, and we just say thank you for this grace. We did not deserve this. You did not have to come, but you came. You willingly came because of the joy of being with us, the joy of redeeming us, the joy of having life with us. We thank you for that. It's incredibly humbling, and we just want to say thank you, Jesus. God, be, be in this place. We need you. We look to you. We call upon you. We just say thank you, Jesus, in your name. Take, eat, and drink. I'll come back up in a moment, and we'll pray again.